Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I'm Scott Radley sitting in for Bill Kelly. Today we're going to talk about Canada losing to Finland in the World Juniors and the resulting TV ratings. 26 people are going to now watch the finals on Saturday. Uh, police organizations across the province are saying... As a result of this report saying that we carding is no longer something we can do and we have to be retrained, we need more money. Should the province be giving more money to police organizations to deal with this? And on Thursday morning, China landed a rover on the dark side of the moon. Not a song, not a joke. They really did. They're back on the moon. No people. But should we be impressed by this? I mean, it has been 50 years since Neil Armstrong was there. Should we be impressed that someone, that a group, that an organization, that a country has made it back onto the moon? We'll talk about all that coming up. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday was a rough night for Team Canada at the World Junior Championships. Lost 2-1 to one to Finland. Big upset. Big upset, especially since it was on Canadian soil. Scott Wheeler is with The Athletic. He joins us now. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh... Off the top, I said there are people, I'm reading some stuff today that says this was the most devastating loss for Canada in world junior history. I'm not sure that would be the case. I think disappointing for sure, but I mean, where would you rank this one? Is it right at the top or somewhere down a few pegs? Uh, Quite honestly, I don't think it's that close to the top. Canada, I mean, maybe it's short-term memory loss or whatnot, but Canada has had some ugly, ugly losses at this tournament. Yep. I mean, I look back at that Marc-Andre Fleury gaff. Um, even a couple of the recent years, there was the lockout year where they had Ryan Nugent Hopkins and company, and they were expected to do well, and they didn't. They finished with the bronze medal. Um, 2011 was heartbreak. So there, there, are, there have been a number of recent moments that I think were more devastating than this. Um, and, and I think the reason for that is that Canada was heavy, heavy favorites in those tournaments, and Canada wasn't a heavy, heavy favorite last night. I think that Finnish team doesn't get enough credit for how good they are. They have five or six elite players. They have at least two or three guys who are better than any of the Canadian forwards, in my opinion. So there's a lot of offensive power there. There's great goaltending from Uko Pekka Lukanen. Uh, they, they just have a lot going for them. And, and Finnish hockey, the last four or five years, they had one disastrous year, in the last four or five, but they've otherwise been brilliant and have really kind of closed the gaps on the Swedens and Canada's and the United States of the world to become one of hockey's true superpowers and really produce world-class talent at the draft. We've seen several top five picks in recent years from the Finns, and that's not letting up. They've got another kid this year who's expected to go second overall. So, uh, And they pump out goalies like we put out. We, Tim Hortons puts out double-doubles. I mean, there is always a good Finnish goalie. Yeah, yeah, and this year is no exception. I mean, Uko Pekalukinen, he plays for the Sudbury Wolves in the OHL, and he's a Buffalo Sabres prospect, but he's legit. He's one of the top goalie prospects in the world, so they're not letting up. There are also, many of the stories today are leading, and, and with reason. I mean, this is, not, this is not a shot at the people who are writing the stories, because I think it's legit to a degree. Uh, they're saying this was the case of the worst possible luck for Canada, that a, a series, a confluence of events happened that were just terrible, terrible breaks for Canada, and that led to the loss. How much can we actually chalk it up to that? Is that is that a fair assessment? I think luck is certainly at play in a tournament like this. You, the best teams don't always win. I mean, Sweden's one goal in 12 years of group play perfection probably speaks to that and just what can happen and the surprises that can happen in an elimination round. 
obviously you don't want to see Noah Dobson break his stick at one end and a goal scored at the other. And Canada had a penalty shot in the, in overtime, but there are also choices from the coaching staff that go into that. The coaching staff chose to run out Maxime Comtois probably because he was the team's captain for that big of a moment. And I'm not sure he's the best option. Quite frankly, I think there were probably three or four more talented shootout players sitting on the bench. So there's certainly a degree of luck that goes into not scoring on a one-timer and having your stick break and not scoring on a penalty shot in overtime and the little chip play that was scored late in the game to tie it. And, and you could see the, the expression on Michael DiPietro's face when that game-tying goal <laughs> went in with 40 seconds left. So there is a great deal of luck, but it was a tight game between two great teams that could have gone either way. And I think the Finns deserve to win as much as Canada did. Talking with Scott Wheeler of The Athletic. And Scott, I'll say this. If I was, now I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm well past the age of ever being able to play in the World Juniors, not that I ever had the skill to do it in the first place. But if I was a, an NHL player, an AHL player, a hockey player anywhere, and I'm in three-on-three three or four-on-four four overtime, I am changing my stick after every shift so I don't have a nick in it. I haven't blocked a shot. So the chance, now there's no guarantee that because that stick could have been weakened by something on that shift. But man, oh man, we've how many times have we seen this happen where some game gets affected by a stick exploding now? It's certainly an issue. I, I, I think it's, it's often overblown in terms of its significance, but there's certainly no denying that sticks breaking as frequently as they do in hockey relative to uh, maybe a bat breaking in baseball or that kind of thing has a major impact on the game, and uh, they've got to, it's something the sport has to figure out. They have to a make equipment more available and and cheaper for the average person so that you can get more people involved in the sport. But at the top level, the equipment that they're using also has to be better. So that's a fine line to walk. And and we saw it last night, and we see it regularly in the Stanley Cup playoffs and in big game seven yeah. and all of those kinds of things. Some so, company is going to make a fortune eventually with the non-breakable stick. Yeah, and, and there's a company called Colt. It's actually a Mississauga company that has tried to do that. They coat the those sort of composite fiber sticks with a metal, um, like a really thin layer of metal at the base of the stick where they're most common to break. And I don't know whether they're any actually any more effective, but there have certainly been companies that try. It's just hard to promote them in the mainstream when you've got to go up against the CCMs and the Bowers. The fact it is a it is a success story for sure. Uh, the fact that Canadians care about this tournament as much as they do, and that's something that has been built by TSN over a number of years on their TV network. They've done a, a terrific job at turning this thing into a tournament that what, 20 years ago, 25 years ago was a niche market and now it's requirement viewing during the holiday season. But I also wonder if the fact that we expect, not only because of successes that Canada has had, but we expect Canada to be great. I mean, great every time because a lot of the time the players that are being talked about are talked in such glowing terms that every single player sometimes sounds like Wayne Gretzky. And I'm wondering if that sets up some false expectations among Canadians, because you mentioned this was not a team that was filled with stars, but you would not necessarily have known that by watching this tournament. Yeah, it's been a little bit of a mixed bag over the last few years where you've had teams that have had Connor McDavid's and you've had teams that don't, and then this sort of hype machine tries to create one. Obviously, Alexi Lafreniere will be a first, likely be a first overall pick barring injury two years from now, but he's also the youngest player on the team, and, and it's hard to promote star power when you're two or three years younger than all of the other kids you're playing with. So 
Canada certainly didn't have that star power this year, and if, if Cody Glass, per se, is your superstar that you're trying to market, mm. it's hard to draw in a more mainstream audience because the vast majority of fans don't know who Cody Glass is. So uh, that, that's a, that can be a tough sell a little bit. And I, So you I, have to I balance it between hyping it and being realistic? Yeah, yeah. And I would be interested in, in really seeing the numbers this year in the tournament in terms of viewership because hmm. it's really easy for the average fan to turn on the TV and watch 17-year-old Connor McDavid, but I'm not sure how easy it is to watch this Canadian group. So uh, we'll be interest- I'll be interested to see how well, that sort of shakes out. Well, Scott, I'll tell you, the, the viewership numbers, I don't know what they'll be for last night. I know what they're going to be for the next semifinal game and the final game, and there's going to be about 27 people tuning in for the rest of the tournament. This was crushing, I would say, for the ratings of what we would expect people to do the rest of the way. After the game last night, and this is, this is, I think, predictable but disappointing. Maxime Comtois, who you mentioned, the captain of the team who took the, sh- the penalty shot in overtime, his Instagram account was absolutely bombarded with really rough comments. Uh, I mean, he was, he was wearing it on social media. And I don't think that that's a surprise, quite frankly. That's how people react these days when they get upset and they get hurt. They go to social media and they take it out anonymously on whomever. But it does raise a really interesting thing with this tournament because it is really easy to forget that these are kids who are mostly kids, 18, 19 year olds who are playing in this tournament. How do you balance that? How do you balance the fact that we've turned this thing into such an enormous thing that people care so deeply about it? And then if it doesn't work out, we turn around and say, yeah, but don't say anything bad about them because they're kids. It's a tough balancing act. Yeah, and and I think you have to do your best as a viewer to keep it in the back of your mind, and and also the broadcasts have to do a good job of reminding you. I think part of what makes the World Juniors so great, and I am a huge fan of the World Juniors, I think it's one of the greatest sort of sporting events, but what I think makes it so great, to be quite honest, is that you get those moments where you can give up a goal with 40 seconds left. You've got guys trying to go between your legs the game before for Canada and the dying seconds against Russia, these kids are just willing to try things that players who are 10 years older than them aren't willing to try. It's fast. There's big big swings in energy, and uh, you can have collapses, but you have to be cognizant of that after the fact. And I mean, it's you don't want anyone going on a teenager's Instagram page and uh, sort of lighting fire to their comments because they missed a penalty shot in overtime. It's, it, it's, it's hard when you're watching these kids to remember that, but you really mm-hmm. have to try to keep it in the back of your mind because... I mean, they, they look like they're older than they are. They're, these kids are 200 pounds. They're, they're massive. They don't look like teenagers. And they certainly feel more mature than they actually are because they're traveling the world to play hockey and they're doing interviews in front of major news outlets. And uh, it, it's hard to, to sort of keep in the back of your mind that these are 17, 18, 19-year-olds. There was something else that popped to mind yesterday when Finland scored with, what was it, 42 seconds, 43 seconds, whatever it was, left in the game to tie it made me immediately think of the 2010 Olympics. Same building, uh, Canada versus the U.S., and the U.S. scored really late in the game to tie it and send it to overtime. It got me wondering, I mean, this game obviously ended poorly, and this is a side note, but it got me wondering how differently we would have thought about those 2010 Olympics, the entire Olympics, if that game in 2010, instead of Sidney Crosby scoring, had ended the same way this one did. Suddenly, in that building, that same game suddenly takes on a whole new meaning. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think we'd have completely different legacies for a few of the players that were involved in that Olympic game. I mean, you could imagine the story and the narrative that would have been written out of Ryan Miller's performance and uh, the reverse story out of this magical Canadian team falling short and the likes of Sidney Crosby not coming up in the big moments. And it's amazing how a split second, and, and I mean that Crosby shot from a brutal angle, kind of changed the narrative about that tournament. And uh, you're absolutely right. Last night would have been some ugly deja vu for Canada as it goes the other way. Yeah, same building. Yeah, first thing that came to mind. Now, we around here in Hamilton know Steve Steos very well. He's the general manager and the president of the Bulldogs. He was on the executive team with this team. He was the general manager, essentially, of Team Canada. How does this, if at all, how does this affect him? He won an Ontario Hockey League championship last year. That bolsters his resume in a big way, third year into the league for the Bulldogs. Now he becomes the GM of a team that's the first Canadian team not to medal on home ice. Does that affect him? Does that look bad on him? Does it look nothing on him? What does it do? I don't think it looks particularly bad on him. I, I, I really liked the roster that they took this year. I, I thought they were, there was maybe one or two cuts on defense that I would have made differently, but otherwise I think they took the right goalies and largely the right forwards. They've really just got burned by not getting some NHL guys back. I mean, the addition of Gabe Pilardi, if he weren't injured, would have been astronomical for this team as a first-line center and someone who could really drive a line and kind of push the Cody glasses of the world down the lineup into spots that fit them a little bit better. Yeah, Robert Thomas. Um, uh, absolutely. Robert Thomas, another Hamilton guy who would have just been a massive addition to this team and really changed the dynamic and added a little bit of star power. So uh, you can't really fault Steos for the, the team that he had. They certainly could have won gold, but it just speaks to the parity that's growing in the international game. You've now got really, I think, five countries that can win it on any given year versus even four as early as four or five years ago when it was basically just Canada's tournament to lose every year. So I really don't think the quarterfinal loss falls on a guy like Steos, and uh, he certainly has put together a nice career for himself, even dating back to his time with the Leafs in management briefly. Just before I let you go, there was one other positive from this, if we can find a positive, because there's a lot of people who are looking for one. After Toronto, uh, two years ago, Toronto and Montreal split, and then Buffalo last year, there were seas of empty seats. Uh, and it looked like it for some people, and, and let's be fair, I mean, the, based on what you just saw, the eyeball test, it looked like this tournament might be sagging a little bit. The fact that Vancouver and Victoria, it, it, it was, if not sold out, it was pretty close to sold out for all the important games, uh, says something that it, the tournament is not dying. It was just oversaturated, and perhaps the organizers here were just a little too greedy with their ticket prices. It, things are just fine in the overall view of this event. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you see that in the television numbers that they draw. People love this event. I think you just need to bring it to fresh markets. Every time it goes to, a, a, and I don't want to call Vancouver a smaller market, but every time it sort of extends beyond southern Ontario, Buffalo, etc., it does extremely well. It does well in Europe. It does well in small towns or smaller city Canada. And, and I would love to see it go back to places like Regina and Halifax and Obviously, Victoria, even though they didn't have Canada in their group, the crowds in Victoria were really good as well, and that's a smaller arena. So uh, I really just think you need to change it up and bring it to different markets and avoid bringing it to a market like Toronto where there's just so much going on and and it really isn't the priority because it's clear that across the country people have adopted it as kind of the holiday spirit and, and people love watching the World Juniors. Scott Wheeler from The Athletic, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Cheers, anytime. And uh, this clears up your schedule now for Friday and Saturday nights. You can, you can look for something else to watch. There's lots on Netflix, so now you don't have to watch a hockey game if 
that's to your liking. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, we chatted on this show about the report that was put out that was released yesterday by Justice Michael Tulloch, which was commissioned by the previous provincial government, the Kathleen Wynne Liberal government, to look at police carding, the process of carding, and to see if there was any benefit to it, to see if the policies that the Liberals had put in were working, were effective, were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And in short, and it's a 310-page report, I'm not going to read it all to you right now. Maybe we'll do that late at night. It can be your, it can be your put you to sleep show. But yeah, the 310 page report, essentially, if you whittle it down, says the social costs of carding outweigh the benefits of carding. That's, that's the simplest way I can put it. But what that has left now is if we're going to officially, because it already, the policies had already been put in place to get rid of carding. If it's officially now taken off the table, police say they need new training and new measures, new ways to get into the communities and do the legwork that is required to keep everybody safe. And that means that police associations and police service boards are saying to the government, we need more money. You want us to do this stuff. You want us to do what you're asking us to do. This is going to cost you some more money. This could, in fact, lead to good results. We'll talk about that in just a second. The question is, however, at a time when the provincial government that was elected on an austerity platform in many ways, a government that came in saying, we are going to be cutting costs. We're going to be whittling down the budget. We have a huge deficit in this province. Is there money for this? Is this a realistic ask by police for more cash at a time when things are being cut? Clint Tulin is the president of the Hamilton Police Association. He joins us now. Clint, how are you today? I'm very well. Thanks for joining us. What would, so if, if more money was to be provided, if there was more funding for this, what would more money do? Well, and we'll use Hamilton Police. Obviously, that's, that's who you're affiliated with. If, what would more money do for this project or for this kind of thing for Hamilton Police? Well, I think the front end of it would be the training aspect to make sure that all of the recommendations, should they be implemented by uh, by the current provincial government, uh, that the training be put in place and the systems be put in place so that we can meet the requirements of the recommendation itself. That would be the front end. Um, I'm not exactly sure what it would look like down the road as far as whether it's it's building um, new systems to, to interact with the community. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like. Uh, like you said, it's a 300-page document. I'm not quite through it all. Um, I think it's going to take a little <laughs> bit of time before that happens. It's, it's not exactly too. John Grisham stuff. No, it's not. And, uh, I mean, I've really tried to focus on the recommendations themselves just to have a look and, and kind of uh, get a feel for wh- where Justice Tulloch was going with it. So I think the front end would be just the training itself and and. and um, how to appropriately apply the recommendations. I mean, there's a lot of things in there that even it speaks to the promotional process that when you're, when you're promoting people, that you ensure that you promote people who are open to change and uh, who, who don't have some of the, um, I guess you'd say, historical views of police officers. Uh, whether those are true or not, or that's a different discussion. Carding was... And correct me anywhere I go wrong along here, but carding was essentially stopped a couple of years ago. And even about a year before that, while it was in the discussion, it was being, it was certainly seen as a, 
something that was being phased out. So what's, if we need the training now in order to deal with what the justice's report is, what's been happening since? Because surely we haven't just been carrying on business as usual. No, we haven't. And we have actually, uh, we have a training program in Hamilton, as I'm sure there are um, across the province in different uh, police services. Uh, we have um, the, like, uh, not only just the training, we've, we've had to implement different kinds of forms. We've changed the policies and procedures. All of that has already happened. Uh, and, and again, without going through uh, the, the, the report in detail, I'm, 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 I think I'm confident in saying that most, if not all, police services have done the same. So we've already taken the steps to address the changes, which came into place January 1st, 2017. So these are modifications to that, and, and, and in some cases, extensions. I mean, uh, the, the one area that I noticed and that really stood out to me was uh, the recommendation to, um, to modify other provincial statutes to include uh, the street checks regulations, which which is which is uh, to me quite problematic. Right, because the my thought as I was asking that question is, if we've had this in place since 2017 and we've all and we've made these changes, and the training has been done, what would be the additional training then that we would need now that has not already been done to handle the changes? Uh, well, again, Scott, I don't know if it's some uh, police services are not quite as. Um, uh, I, I, I guess haven't been as extensive the, the training itself as Hamilton because I know that Hamilton has been very proactive and done an awful lot to address uh, the legislation. So I don't know if that's a, the, the, those recommendations are a result of some services just kind of lagging behind or it's a result of the actual uh, recommendations. Um, I do know that um, anything that involves uh, at further training is going to come at a cost, and that's that's. I know I read um, uh, some comments by the Toronto Police Association president Mike McCormick mm-hmm. and Bruce Chapman. Uh, there's no no two ways about it. If you're going to increase the the training, um, it's going to come at a cost. And and of course, I was also looking at the recommendations. The one recommendation on what has to be included in a, in an it's uh, they're called regulated interactions. Um, the list goes from A all the way to R. Well, that's a pretty extensive report. So those types of things, if you're going to monitor those types of things, you're going to have to increase staffing. This, is, this isn't uh, you know, a two-sentence report saying, I stopped this person at this date and this time. When you're, you're listing all the way from A to R, and it's a whole plethora of different different items that you need to report. You have to have analysts. You have to have um, data entry people. You have to have people that are are making sure that it's appropriately uh, tracked, and and that the regulations are followed based on the recommendations by Justice Tulloch. So we're not talking necessarily then about a one-time expense, a one-year line in the budget for police training, because if you're going to have to have more staff, this is going to be an ongoing expense then. Absolutely, it's it's something that um, is is going to be an ongoing thing that's monitored. We're, I mean, the, the the conversation is quite extensive on the police database and so on and so forth, and the responsibilities of not just the police services, but the police services boards as well. So, uh, to to have those systems in place to make sure that the these these documents are purged on the appropriate dates, uh, that the systems are in place to to make sure that it's properly tracked. All those things take time and they take people to do it as well. And as well, it takes technology. 
with the some of the changes that your association and your members have seen over the past couple of years, as you've talked about these changes that Hamilton police have made, we don't know what the other departments have made, but as, that you have made, do police stops now take longer time? If you're going to deal with some, and I'm not talking about, you know, your average, uh, I'm talking something that might have been something that carding would have been involved with or a, a, a random stop before. If you're doing that kind of community work now, do they take longer time to dot all the I's and cross all the T's so that it, you're going to have more officers tied up for longer? Well, I guess there's there's two answers to that. Uh, firstly, uh, to answer your question, yes, they do take longer. If you're going to uh, do what's called a regulated interaction, then yes, you're going to have to fill out the receipt. You're going to have to fill out the paperwork that goes through the system here at the like at the police service to to properly monitor um, um, those types of stops. Uh, on the flip side, I, I know for a fact that there's a lot of police officers that are weighing the pros and cons of doing a regulated interaction. So they're doing less of them. Well, I'm yes, I'm going to say that they are. Now, with that being said, though, I think, um, well, what I know for a fact is that our police officers here in Hamilton continue to do their proactive work. When they see something that they believe is... is um, suspicious, and I'm very careful to use that word because it's actually defined in this regulation, suspicious activity, which again, I think is very problematic. Um, but they, uh, police officers in Hamilton continue to do their work, and, and I think that if you, you, you watch some of the reports that come out of the Hamilton Police Service, you'll see uh, some of the biggest arrests, seizures of guns and drugs and so on, uh, that's done through proactive policing. So they're still doing their jobs, but um, it's certainly that 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 creep of um, of not oversight, but of being continually criticized and second guessed on 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 some of the things that you're doing. It's certainly starting to play a role. I won't hold you to the exact definition, but as you've read it, what does suspicious mean then? If if suspicious is is now a, an actual definition that you have to follow, what does that mean? Well, it, it, it means, so it's, the, the recommendation is that it be, uh, for universal reasons across all police services in Ontario, that there be a consistent definition. And the most problematic part of that is that I see the word objective. Well, object, uh, you know, an objective position can mean a lot of different things to different people. What's objective to a police officer is not objective to a civilian. We do, uh, historically anyway, and this is what we're seeing decline in, and that's working on a hunch, you know, that gut feeling. That is being taken away um, under this, under the current legislation and these recommendations. So, um, I mean, I've sat in on interviews by the OIPRD where, um, it's clear that ob- objectivity is an issue. Not sh- like it, it, it's it's one of those things that it's a personal. Um, now people would say that it's subjective, but what's objective to me and what's objective to you is, I think, a pretty transient term, if you if you will. That's what I find uh, really uh, difficult to understand when it, it you know you're giving a definition on such a suspicious activity. We talked about training to start this. Now, you've made clear that this would require probably some more staff, some more people. But when the tra- as far as the training part goes, would it be fair to say that if more money was required for that, that that would be the training part would be a short-term budget item? Because presumably after that, Clint, once the officers were trained, any new officers coming in would have received this kind of training at the police college before they got here. So they'd be up to date on the current procedures. 
Well, what we do, Scott, on a year-to-year uh, basis is uh, block training. It's a week that the officers go and they do like all sorts of different uh, training. Some of it is mandated by the province and some of it's um, um, just training that we, we think is important in our community here in Hamilton. But what I can tell you is case law is ever-changing. So uh, it, it certainly, once the initial training is done, um, you're going to have to have follow-up training as time goes on because case law just changes the way in which uh, laws are interpreted and, and how they're applied. So I, I would agree that the, 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 the uh, upfront training would happen and that would be a one-time thing, but you would see throughout um, you know, the course of an officer's um, uh, career that that different things change due to case law and and so that would have to be addressed on an ongoing basis. Now, and to be absolutely fair for people listening, this is not just Clint or other police association people asking for more money. Justice Tullock in his report suggested more money for police as a result of what he was suggesting. So it's not just you guys. That said, Clinton, you know this as well as everyone listening, this government came into office, this provincial government came into office on a platform running on austerity. We are going to cut the budget. We're going to cut the deficit. We're going to get rid of things. Here you're going to have to make a case that they should be spending more money. How do you do that? Well, I'm I'm glad it's not my job. I mean, we, uh, Scott, right from day one, the whole issue of book carding and street checks, um, myself, my role as a, as a president of an association is not to try to direct um, legislation or otherwise. It's to inform the public and protect my members. That's, that to me, like that is the, the primary goal. It's going to be up to the municipalities to try to find a way to convince the provincial government that, that this is funding that they are going to have to have. Historically, that has not happened. This has fallen onto the municipalities themselves. So when we see these t- types of changes, whether it's uh, you know the, the the oversight review that that, that um, recommended a number of different changes, or it's the carding legislation, historically that's fallen on the shoulders of the municipalities. And I think that's why you're seeing police services board members actually speaking up on this report, saying, "Look, at, if you want uh, these changes and you want this training put in place and you want these these new systems in place." The provincial government, you guys are the ones who who put this um, review together, then you're going to have to, to, to fund it. Now, again, I know that it was the Liberal government who... Yeah, it's put, a little uh, trickier because it's two different governments right. now that uh, the, the second one can say, well, we didn't ask for it. And that, that that may be something that we see, Scott. I don't know how the how the um, how the current government's going to react to the recommendations. Clearly, they're going to do their due diligence. But I guess we're going to have to sit back and wait and see. But I what happens you, if they do say no? What happens if the government says, you know, what there just is no more money for this? Deal with it. Well, I, that's going to be interesting because uh, then we'll fall on the current legislation and and the way it's written and the way that we've been applying that legislation up to this point. Um, you know, the, the the problem becomes now if Justice Tullock has made a recommendation that now, um, you know, we have a complaint in six months uh, that, that would have been addressed by a recommendation, but it hasn't been implemented, then I think we're going to see whether or not it's kind of a forced reaction, whether the 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 changes are forced upon us because of the recommendations. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Because I can, I, I was looking up the numbers just before we came on, and Statistics Canada now it was 2016-17, so we're a little behind. So the number is going to be a little higher. But at 2016-17 across Canada, 
not just Ontario, across Canada, it was almost $15 billion was spent on policing. And I can, and you probably can too, I can see citizens, I can see people in the government saying, you know, enough is enough. We, we don't have more than $15 billion for policing. Figure it out with the money you have. I could easily see that being the case. Yeah, and, and if you also, um, there's an interesting article um, today about the way that the, this this report has been presented as well. There's statistically and factually, there's no um, evidence presented in the review um, to support some of Justice Tullock's findings. You know whether or not uh, the, the the total impact that carding has from a social uh, perspective. Um, so when you consider that as well, what's the justification behind it? And can you can you justify spending a lot of money based on a report that doesn't have the causal relationships or the or the statistical data to support the recommendations themselves? I guess uh, that's up to the provincial government to make some decisions on. But uh, again, you know, if if these are the things that that the government wants implemented, I've I've been really really firm on this. I don't think that the citizens of Hamilton should pay for this. I think that it should be a provincial government um, bill, and we'll have to wait and see whether or not uh, the, the the provincial government wants to enter into that. Yeah, and and I don't know even who the police. If they're going to be successful, who they make the case to, whether it's the people or the government, but it's um, it's an interesting one I, it, that I'm sure is going to be discussed a lot and I'm sure is going to cause great headaches within the provincial government because, as I say, they are trying to cut and this means adding more and everybody, it's not just, it's not just police, everybody's looking for more. So how do you pick which more you're going to give? Yeah, and, and um, like I, I, I truly believe that there's some recommendations in this report that are actually going to deter public safety. I really do. The, I mean, the, the recommendation to start changing um, other legislation like the Highway Traffic Act. Um, when I read some of the recommendations related to that, um, I, it, it, gives, it gives me a lot of concern because I see that as, uh, as uh, a decrease in public safety. And that's something that the provincial government's going to have to weigh as well. They're going to have to speak to... Um, stakeholders like associations, police services, police services boards, to determine whether the recommendation in and of themselves have any real impact and or validity and what kind of impact that's going to have. Uh, like I said, I, I find uh, just reading it and knowing my personal experience issues surrounding the, the recommendations like having to apply these regulations to um, traffic stops to passengers, that to me is, is problematic because we know in policing um, what gang members are doing. We know what human traffickers are, are doing. And, and the recommendations that I'm reading uh, are going to actually allow them to ply their trade even more effectively. Clint Toulon, President of the Hamilton Police Association. Appreciate you taking the time today for doing this. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Have a happy new year. You as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are reports today that a Chinese spacecraft, which I believe is pronounced Chang-4, I don't know if there's a fancier way to describe it, but uh, it has landed on the dark side of the moon, which immediately made me have thoughts of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Pink Floyd. But I also wonder why they're doing it. Uh, it is 50 years since the 50 years this year. This is the anniversary. July of this year will be 50 years since the U.S. first put people up there. 
it has been done as a result. Why go back? Why put people or not people yet, but why even put rockets? Why put landers? Why put rovers back on the moon? What is the purpose of this? Paul Delaney is a professor of astronomy at York University. He joins us now. Uh, Paul, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, sir. So 50 years ago, as I say, we used, or NASA, not we, the United States used a rocket that was powered by computers that were pretty rudimentary, that had about as much power as your smartphone would have right now, and got humans onto the surface of the moon and back home again. Makes me wonder if 50 years later, if this is still a remarkable achievement to get a vehicle there. Oh, I think it is. Um, you know, in many ways, NASA abandoned the moon after the Apollo 17 mission in 1972, and very few missions have gone back to the moon at all, and most of them into orbit. But to be able to place a vehicle on lunar far side, uh, to be able to explore literally half of the moon that we've never really looked at, I mean, think about it, we landed six times on lunar near side, but the far side was completely ignored as far as surface exploration is concerned try to understand the entire history of the moon from half a dozen landings is like trying to understand the entire history of the earth with a similar number of landings. It's inadequate. Uh, so, you know, going back to lunar far side to be able to explore literally 50% of the moon that we've not seen is a big deal as far as science is concerned. And let's not lose sight of the fact that the uh, Chinese space program is prepping to put people on the moon themselves. Not an easy endeavor, even with the NASA landings of 50 years ago. Well, let me ask about that, because when you look at technology, I mean, if we, if we could get into a time capsule and go back to 1969 and look at what technology was at that time, I mean, just to know that, all you have to do is one example, and not you, you know this, but for some people listening, just go and watch the video clips of people watching the moon landing, even their TV sets, if you look at where we are there to now. Technology has changed so dramatically. Shouldn't it be relatively easy for us to get to the moon now, relatively speaking? Relatively speaking, that's true. But think about the last sort of 10, 15 years as other groups have developed rocketry technology. Now, for the longest time, we just thought of NASA and and the USSR, the Russian Space Federation, as the only two groups uh, of, of nations on this planet that could put things into Earth orbit. But over the last 10 to 20 years, India, China, Japan have all gotten into the act of launching vehicles, not to mention the European Space Agency, into Earth orbit and onto the planet. Uh, It is a challenge to get rocketry out of the Earth's gravity well and then to create a spacecraft that is sufficiently autonomous to do the hard things like landing on another object, Mars, uh, you know, um, the Moon, and so on. It's not easy. Uh, It is expensive, but the infrastructure that you build to create that type of uh, success reflects very well on the society. You develop a, a, a skilled workforce that is able to support other technological developments within your own country. So there is certainly a big economic benefit for countries to go this route, to explore space from both the science perspective as well as you know, the economic value. I don't want to belabor this point, but to ask about the technology and the ease of doing this, Would it be a lot easier today to do this? Because you say it's still very difficult. Would it be a lot easier had we not abandoned the Apollo project after Apollo 17, if over the the later 47 years that we've gone, if we had kept going and kept moving forward with this, would it now be something that would be commonplace potentially? 
I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, there was a, a very deliberate decision to stop doing the difficult things after the Apollo 17 landing. I mean, from 1972 through to 1981, there was a nine-year hiatus when the U.S. essentially, uh, you know, didn't do very much in orbit. They they flew Skylab three times in 1973, and one Soyuz uh, Apollo mission in 75. You know, history repeats itself. We have not had a space shuttle or any other U.S. capability since 2011 to put people into orbit. So unfortunately, the space program goes into these sort of ups and downs in mm. hills and valleys. Uh, but yeah, if we had stayed the course, you know, you and I would probably be taking uh, long weekends on the moon about this point in time. Man, but I'm mad didn't. at the NASA people then for not doing it. That would have been a great weekend. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the, I think it was on 60 Minutes, about two or three years before he died, that Neil Armstrong did an interview. And I think the line he used, I don't have the exact quote, was he said, basically, it stopped when the competition went away. As soon as Russia yeah. became disinterested and fell apart, the, the Soviet Union, rather, the, the motivation for the states to keep going at this sort of fell away. And that was the cause. I, there's, there's a lot of truth in that statement. I mean, the, the space race of the 60s was very politically motivated. As much as I, I love the science that we got out of the space program in the 60s and the lunar rocks that came back, giving us a great understanding of, of you know, not just the moon, but the solar system in general, the political motivation was at the forefront of writing the blank check that took us to the moon. Mm. When the U.S. won that race with Neil Armstrong's first foot on the moon there in July of 69, yeah, the, the blank check writing stopped, and so too did the, uh, the NASA space program. And, you know, lots have been written over the last 40 or 50 years about the replacement, the space shuttle system, and so on and so forth. But in many ways, we have been spinning our wheels, a.k.a. going around and around in Earth orbit for a long period of time. It's not to say that NASA hasn't done spectacular things. Look at New Horizons just <laughs> the other day with Ultima Thule. There has certainly been progress made as far as NASA's exploration is concerned. But as far as human spaceflight is concerned, yeah, the blank check stopped when the competition went away. And in many senses, the Chinese making their overtures to the moon, and make no mistake, they will be on the moon with people within a few years. That may well rekindle a little bit of U.S. interest in going back to the moon. Well, they've said, what, 2025, something like that, that they intend to put someone back on the moon? Uh, the, the Chinese? Yes. Yeah, in fact, if, if all goes well before 2025, they hope to do a sample return mission to the moon uh, within the next 12 months. And if that goes according to plan, then a more sophisticated mission in 2021. And after that, the way may well be cleared for a, uh, a human flight to the moon. So it could be as early as 2023. Paul, I was too young. I was born, but too young to really know, watch, appreciate the moon landing back in 69, the first one. But I just finished reading the book First Man, which, by the way, anyone who hasn't read it is the story of Neil Armstrong. Terrific book. Excellent, excellent book if you need something for the new year. And it was a reminder to me of the excitement and the overwhelming level of interest in this at the time. If Now, 50 years later... It's not going to be the same. It's not going to be the first, but it's the first in a long, long time if China is able to put someone on the moon successfully and if presumably they have high-definition cameras or whatever else. Will there be, not that level, but will there be an exceedingly high level of interest around the world in that if that happens? 
I think it will rekindle a lot of that lost excitement. Uh, going to the moon, I'm, you know, I, I remember Neil walking down that ladder and setting foot upon the moon. The, the 60s was an amazing time as far as human spaceflight is concerned. And the level of excitement that was generated in 1969, particularly with four Apollo missions, was, you know, you had to be there. <laughs> and I was, and it was fabulous. Uh, you're not going to rekindle that, but I think if we do see the uh, Chinese successfully land on the moon with the high-definition television, as you say, it is going to rekindle a lot of excitement. It's going to ask a lot of questions about why it was that it took us so long to get mm. back to the moon, and it was a completely different organization that went back, shall we say. What so happens if it doesn't work, though? What happen- I mean, there was a lot of talk, and, and again, reading through this book and reading, watching a bunch of stuff, there was tons of talk in 69 that if the Apollo 11 mission had crashed or something horrible had happened, that could be the end of it, that we may have lost the appetite for that kind of thing. What happens if the Chinese effort goes horribly awry? Does that put an end to it forever then? No. Uh, I mean, there is risk associated with space. There's no question about that. But the 1986 Challenger disaster did not cancel the space shuttle program. The 2003 Columbia loss did not cancel the space exploration process with humans. We live in orbit today, and I think it's part of our our future destiny, if you will, for humanity to explore the solar system. Uh, will Will a disaster on the moon set back that process? certainly will. Uh, but you will always find organizations and people who are prepared to you know, put themselves out there, if you will, on the cutting edge of technology, uh, as dangerous as it may be. But coming back to your earlier point, it's a lot safer today flying those rockets than it ever was in the 60s. But the 60s saw so many people in orbit willing to you know, push the frontiers. So no, it will not stop uh, human exploration of the solar system. Will it slow it down? Absolutely. But it will probably increase their resolve to get it right the next time around. We did see back in 2004, 5, 6, something in there that George W. Bush had talked about putting man back on the moon. Re-get, I was going to say relaunching, pardon the pun, relaunching the moon program. And that was scuttled under the Obama administration. And I'm assuming part of it had to do a lot, maybe had to do with budget. But if China is successful... And you sort of alluded to this a moment ago. Do you see Americans saying, all right, you know what, uh, whether for political reasons, for military reasons, for whatever reasons, we got to get back on this horse? Yes. <laughs> in fact, they've already gone down that pathway. Uh, back in 2016, NASA and the Russian Space Federation have uh, together proposed to have what they refer to as a lunar gateway station in orbit around the moon in preparation for a human return to the lunar surface. Uh, You know, we're not the only ones who can read the tea leaves, so as to speak. You know, the the Chinese have been fairly upfront with what their proposed plans for space exploration are. And you can bet that NASA has been paying attention to that. So, yes, there is already the seeds being planted for improved NASA budgeting, if you will, uh, and a return to the moon. And, you know, it's been politically motivated. There's no doubt in the world about that. But uh, I, for one, will take that political motivation and head back to the moon where we should have been, you know, 50 years ago. Why does, okay, China has made it, as you say, has made it clear that they have ambitions for their space program. Why does China want or need the moon for that? 
Um, well, I, I guess th there are two answers to that. The moon is relatively nearby, and it is obviously another celestial body, so there is there's a great deal of science that can be gained, but all of the technology lessons they need to learn to go beyond you know, Earth out to the rest of the solar system can be learned by going to the moon. So the moon is, if you will, a bit of a testing ground, a proving ground. If you can go to the moon successfully and come back, arguably you can go anywhere you like in the solar system. So as a testing ground nearby, that's point number one. But uh, as I also indicated earlier, it drives their local economy. There's a phenomenal amount of spin-off technology that arises from the development of the material that gets you into space and gets you back home from space. And that permeates through the economy, uh, and everybody lives that dream, so to speak. You and I live in the most technologically advanced age ever, and a lot of that has its genesis back in the space race of the 60s. You started by saying that we've never been on the dark side of the moon before, and it's like exploring the Earth with only going to half of it. But is there, is there value? To, I mean, I'm assuming the answer is a lot, but what do we not know about the moon that we still want to or that we still need to? Well, Lunar Farside was being proposed as uh, a lunar landing site all the way back in 1968. NASA rejected it simply because of the challenge that was associated with Lunar Farside. So, you know, NASA recognized that, yes, there was great value in going to that location or to those locations, but they just you know opted out of the risk and they opted out of the uh the financing of it uh many organizations have signaled that they want to go to the lunar far side for sample return missions because it is distinctly different to lunar near side mm. uh it, you know it's a little bit like sort of the frozen tundra of the canadian north versus the fertile area of the niagara valley uh you know there are similarities but there are also differences and those similarities and differences talk to us about the development and the evolution of the planetary surface. And so going to the lunar far side, apart from being very radio quiet, it can't see the Earth, and therefore from a radio astronomy point of view, it's absolutely pristine. There is much to be said and learned from the composition of lunar far side. I am over time already, but I've got to ask you this. I only have 10 <laughs> seconds. How quickly could the states, now that they've been out of the moon program for so long, if they decided to ramp it back up, how quickly could they get back into that game? Well, they couldn't get back people to the lunar surface, I wouldn't think, within five years. And that would require, again, a blank check. The technology exists. You need the money to be able to put it on a time scale that is really, really quick. And if we're talking about the Chinese being on the moon in 2023, you've got to do it within five years. A blank check would do it. Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy at York University. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, sir. And if, uh, again, if you are looking for a great, I'm telling you, a great book to read this year, you saw the movie, you may have seen the movie called First Man. The book is way better than the movie. Go out and get the book and read the book. It is terrific. It's a story of Neil Armstrong and it is outstanding if you need something good to read. It's like 600 pages too, so it'll keep you tied up till July. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.